Welcome, friends and seekers, to the Gospel Inc. podcast, where ink meets inspiration and stories of faith come to life. I am your host, David Green, and while I'm not a preacher, I'm here to guide you on a refreshing journey through the pages of hope and salvation. Each week, we delve into different chapters of the Bible, unpacking the wisdom, uncovering the truths, and exploring the life-saving message within. Together, we will navigate the rich mosaic of God's Word, allowing it to illuminate our paths, enrich our spirits, and deepen our understanding of faith and life. Imagine navigating the complete life with the Bible as your compass, painting each day with the strokes of grace, love, and truth. Here at Gospel Inc., that is not just a dream. It is our shared journey. So why wait? Embark on an enlightening adventure with us. Let your spirit be stirred and your heart be filled with the warmth and ultimate truth. Stay tuned and stay blessed as we unfold Byron Hughes of the Gospel, only here on Gospel Inc. Welcome back to Gospel Inc., the podcast where we journey through the scriptures together, shedding light on the eternal truths of the gospel. My name is David Green, and I am thrilled to be your host and fellow traveler on this spiritual expedition. Each episode, we dive deep, unearthing the hidden treasures of God's word and seeking its transformative power for our lives today. Whether you're seeking solace in these uncertain times, or maybe you're yearning for a deeper understanding of your faith, I am really grateful you have chosen to embark on this journey with us. Together, we'll ink our hearts and minds with timeless teachings and insights of the gospel. Today, we have a particularly intriguing passage that has captivated believers for generations. So wherever you are, I invite you to take a moment, pause, and immerse yourself in the wisdom of revelations that we're about to explore. So why don't we get started? First, we're going to open our Bibles to Revelations chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Here it dictates the emergence of the beast, and here's what it said. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon gave his power, and his throne, and his great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, what we're seeing here is the emergence from the sea, right? The beast descent from the sea signifies chaos and opposition to God. As in biblical times, right? The sea often symbolized mystery, fierce forces. We can see this in Daniel's vision. The sea similarly brings forth beast, representing the kingdoms and powers. This verse is found in Daniel 7.3. And he writes, In the vision I saw during the night, suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea, from which emerged four immense beasts, each different from the other. Then what we see is the composite of the kingdoms, right? The beast is not just one entity, but appears as a composite of several different creatures. The likening to a leopard, a bear, and a lion recalls Daniel's vision, where these creatures represent various empires. In Revelations, this beast might symbolize a future global power that embodies the characteristics of maybe previous empires. Then we have the blasphemous authority. The diadems and the blasphemous names highlights the beast's dominion and defiance against God. Given its power and throne by the dragon or Satan, this beast operates under the ultimate evil authority, underlying the spiritual battle at hand. Then what it does is it mimics the resurrection. The apparent mortal wound and its healing is an event of great significance. This could represent a historical event, a future occurrence, or even a false resurrection aiming to mimic Christ's beautiful resurrection. But the aim is clear, to astonish and deceive the world. 
The Apostle Paul warns of such deceptive wonders performed by the lawless one, or Satan. Ultimately, many view the person being described here as the Antichrist and the false prophet. The first beast is described as coming from the sea. Most interpreters see this as a reference to the Mediterranean, and this person is a uh, usually referenced as a political or, or military leader with roots in that area. The deception of this creature is peculiar, right? Um, but it's really symbolic, with each aspect representing part of the figure's power or character. This figure will be empowered by Satan to exert near unlimited power over the earth. This includes persecution and murder of Christians, accompanied by blasphemy against God and the cult-like worship from the people of earth. In most interpretations, this is the end of times figure popularly referred to as the Antichrist. But let's unpack Revelations uh, verses 1 through 3 a little bit in the context of modern times. What we see is several key themes arise. We see the globalization and confluence of powers. The beast's composited nature, right, reflecting the leopard, a bear, and a lion, could be seen as embryonic for the merging world order, where national identities and distinct powers blur into a singular dominant force. This resonates in our era of international coalitions, global organizations, and multinational corporations that exert significant influence over nations and their populations. The beast might hint at the culmination of these global powers, rising from the sea of humanity's collective consciousness and ambitions. What else we can point to is media perception. The world's marveling at the beast after its wound is healed can be paralleled with modern world obsession. Right? The global media, the internet, the social platforms, they all play a pivotal roles in shaping perceptions and narratives. A significant event akin to the beast's resurrection amplified through these channels could easily sway public opinion, causing mass astonishment and allegiance. And lastly, we look at the cultural shift in the in spiritual and the physical. Right, The beast's blasphemous names could be represent of growing secularism and the diminishing reverence for the divine. The increasing cultural shifts that challenge traditional beliefs and practices could be seen as paving the way for a world more receptive to the beast allure. Ultimately, the emergence of this beast in Revelations chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, provides a stark picture of the end of times, emphasizing the convergence of past empires, blatant defiance against God, and a world ready to be deceived. Yet even the portrayal of apparent strength and wonder, believers are reminded of God's sovereignty and the temporal nature of the beast's reign. As 1 John 4, 4 encourages, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Next, we move down to Revelations chapter 13, verse 4. This is where we see the worship of the dragon and the beast. Here is what it says, and they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority over to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now, what we see here is deceptive adoration, right? This verse captures the world's reaction to the astounding power and authority of the beast. The act of worshiping the dragon or Satan underscores humanity's susceptibility to deception when faced with displays of might and wonder. This draws parallels to Second Theologians uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, where Paul describes the coming of the lawless one with satanic power performing signs and wonders to deceive those who are witnessing. Next, we see the mistaken authority. The dragon's gifting of authority to the beast illustrates how the deceptive powers of the end of times will derive their authority from Satan, not God. 
Yet many will blend to this, right? Mistakenly elevate the beast to a status of unparalleled power and question who could possibly contend with it, who could defeat him. They're going to say he is so strong that nobody, including God, can stand against this beast. How wrong they are. And then we see the uh, challenge to divine supremacy. The declaration, who is like the beast, is really chilling. As it marries the Old Testament praise of God, who is like you, O Lord. This parallel suggests a direct challenge to God's supremacy, showcasing the audacity of evil in the last days. They're trying to take over God. It's not going to happen. We already have the end of the book and Christ is coming back to destroy you. But examining Revelations chapter 13, verse 4, in the lens of contemporary world unfolds layers of relevance and potential application. So one of the things I thought about, right, was celebrity and the influence of culture. The world's alteration, right, for the beast can be juxtaposed with today's culture of celebrity worship. With the prohibition of social media and the hyper-connected world, people often elevate individuals or entities to near-deity status based on charisma, influence, or perceived power. The allure of the beast may echo how easily society can be enamored by a figure who presents themselves with the allure and authority, even when their true intentions or sources of power are very, very questionable. Next, we see the unchecked power struggle, right? The question, who can fight against this, reflects an almost defeatist attitude towards the challenges of the oppressed and the dominant powers. In our time, we witness multinational corporations, political behemoths, or tech giants exerting an overwhelming influence. Their dominance sometimes feels uncontestable, leading to a compliance or even reverence for the masses. The beast authority given by the dragon could resemble these seemingly insurmountable entities that derive their power from sources not always aligned with the common good. Then we see the blurred lines of morality. As the world worships the dragon and the beast, it underscores a decline in moral and spiritual discernment. In today's context, relative truths, subjective moralities, and the dismissal of absolute truths can contribute to society's vulnerability to deception. The overt challenge to divine supremacy evident in scriptures can find parallels in movements or ideologies that attempt to dethrone traditional values, replacing them with secular or self-serving doctrines. We see it every day in the United States. And then the compromised faith in the pursuit of security. The beast allure might symbolize humanity's tendency to gravitate towards perceived safety, even if it means compromising their faith. In modern times, individuals might forsake their beliefs or principles in exchange for economic security, maybe societal acceptance or physical safety, echoing the world's readiness to embrace the beast in Revelations. Ultimately, Revelations chapter 13, verse 4, it really paints a vivid picture of a world captivated by the beast's false display of power, you know, prompting misplaced adoration. It serves as a somber reminder for believers to stay vigilant, discerning to the true source of power, and always holding fast to their unwavering faith in God's ultimate supremacy and sovereignty. Those people being led astray are going to be doomed. I don't know how you could forget the power of God who has created all and you know taken care of all and pushed him aside. And we've already seen the power in Revelations. We've already seen the miracles that he has done. And people still fall away from faith. All right, moving down, we're going to go to verses five through eight. 
this what I call the blasphemy and the dominion of the beast. Here it says, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it, it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given over to every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb will be slain. So what we see here, right? The blasphemous proclamations. The beast utterance are not mere words, but deliberate challenges to God's sovereignty. The audacity to speak against the mighty, against his name and his heavenly dwelling is an epitome of rebellion and a clear attempt to sow doubt and disbelief among the masses. Then we see the limited reign. The specific time frame of 42 months, equivalent to three and a half years, underscores God's sovereign control, even over evil. This period provides other prophetic durations uh, mentioned in Daniel and suggests a time of unparalleled tribulation before the ultimate triumph of good over evil. Then we see the persecution of the faithful, right? The beast war against the saints harkens back to earlier warnings about the persecution of believers will face in the end of times, which is found in Matthew 24, 9. Yet while the beast may seem to conquer them in an earthly sense, the eternal victory belongs to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then we see global dominion. The beast's authority is unparalleled, extending over every tribe, people, language, and nation. The global influence amplifies the gravity of the end of times and the universality of its impact. But we have the book of life. Despite the beast reign and the world's worship, not everyone will succumb. Those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the world began stand as a testament to God's foreknowledge and the surety of salvation for those who choose him. The Lamb, identified as Jesus, who was slain for humanity's sins, is a beacon of hope amidst these dark times. Now, as we place you know, Revelations chapter 13, verses 5 through 8, under a microscope of today's world context, it reveals uncanny parallels and cautionary tales of contemporary society. What we see is echoes of arrogance and leadership. The beast's haughty and blasphemous words might find semblance in some of today's leadership styles. Over the ages, many rulers or influential uh, figures have exhibited arrogance, challenging traditional morals or even divine principles. Their messages, amplified by modern communication channels, can quickly permeate societies, leading many, many, many astray. Next, we have the temporal power versus the eternal sovereignty of God, right? The beast reign for 42 months underscores the transition nature of earthly dominion. In our era, we've seen empires rise and fall. Corporations achieve global influence only to collapse, and ideologies gain ground only to be rebuffed. Such cycles serve as a reminder that no matter how influential a force might seem at any given moment, it operates within the bounds set by the higher power. Then we see modern-day persecutions. While physical persecutions of believers persist in some parts of the world today, other forms have emerged in our age. Those include discrimination against people of faith, suppression of religious freedoms, or the, trivial, uh, the minimization of sacred values in media and popular culture can be seen in a new age battle against the saints. It's a call for believers to stand firm 
embody their faith, even amidst immersity. We must stand firm. We must stand firm for God because he died for our sins and we must support him. We must live for him. Next, we talk about the rise of globalization, right? The beast authority over every tribe and nation can be likened to the sweeping influence of a globalization society. The interconnectedness of economics and technology and the homogenization of cultures pose both opportunities and threats. While they foster our unity and shared progress, they also enable a singular entity or ideology to get undue influence akin to the beast dominion. Then we talk about preserving individuality and mismasked conformity. You know, the reference to all on earth worshiping the beast, except for those in Lamb's Book of Life, can be paralleled with societal pressures to conform. In the age of viral trends and mass movements, individual discernment can get clouded. Yet, just as those inscribed in the Book of Life remain steadfast, Individuals today are encouraged to hold on to their unique convictions, even when they run counter to popular opinion. Revelations chapter 13, verses 5 through 8, really paints a dystopian vision of the beast's reign, marked by blasphemy, persecution, and dominion. Yet, even in the darkest moments of human history, it carries an undercurrent of hope. For amidst the beast's tyranny, God's chosen ones, those written in the Lamb's book of life, remain a testament to God's eternal promise and the eventual triumph of his kingdom. All right, moving down to verses 9 through 10. A call for endurance and faith. Here's what it says. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So what we do, we heed the warning, right? The proclamation, if anyone has an ear, let him hear, is reminiscent of Jesus' words to the seven churches in the earlier chapters of Revelations. This repetitive phrase is a clear-in call, urging believers to discern the spiritual truths and implications of the message, not just at the surface level. Then what we can see is preordained trials, right? The reference to captivity and being slain by the sword may sound grim. But they serve to illustrate the predetermined challenges some believers might face during these tribulations. Just as Jesus forewarned his disciples of his forthcoming persecutions, this prophecy lays bare the hardships awaiting believers in the end of times. Yet there's a larger message. These events do not happen outside of God's knowledge or control. And then the call for endurance and faith. The emphasis here is not on the trials themselves but on the response they elicit. This is a rallying cry for believers to demonstrate unwavering endurance and faith amidst adversity. The term saints refers to the sanctified, the holy ones, the believers. And for them, this is not merely a test of patience, but a profound test of their faith in God's ultimate deliverance and justice. Ultimately, right, Revelations verses 9 through 10 is both a cautionary tale and a tale of encouragement. While it doesn't shy away from the stark realities of persecution and suffering, it also uplifts with endurance of the spirit of the faithful. It serves as a poignant reminder that trials, no matter how intense, are temporary. But the steadfast faith of the saints in the face of adversity carries eternal significance. Now moving down to verses 11 through 12. Here we see the rise of the second beast. Here's what it says. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, 
and it spoke like a dragon. And it exercised all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, what we see is an emergence from the earth, right? Following the first beast that rose out of the sea, the second beast arises from the earth. The contrasting sources of these two beasts might symbolize different spheres of influence or authority. While seas in biblical times were often linked with chaos and, and Gentile nations, the earth might represent a more established or religious domain. Then we see the deceptive appearance. The description of the second beast is particularly intriguing to me. It has horns like a lamb which implies a semblance of innocence or perhaps even a false representation of Christ, the Lamb of God. However, that voice reveals its true nature, for it spoke like a dragon, indicating its alignment with Satan and deception. Then we see the puppet, right? The puppet of the first beast. This beast is not independent, but operates under the directive of the first beast. It promotes and enforces and worships the first beast in a kind of close collaborative relationship between the two. Their combined influence serves to deceive and subjugate the inhabitants of the earth. They're reminding the miracle. The second beast continually draws attention to the first beast's mortal wound that was healed a deceptive sign designed to astound and allure the masses into false worship. This might be twisted imitation of the true miracle of Christ's resurrection, further employed to deceive the masses. While translated Revelations uh, verses 11 and 12 into contemporary context, it's intriguing to explore how the symbols and the warnings resonate in our modern world. What we see here, right? Dual origins in a modern dominions. The first beast rising from the sea and the second from the earth could hand out the dual realms of global politics and localized or cultural influences in today's world. If the sea represents, you know, international politics, the earth could, you know, signify local or domestic establishments, perhaps even religious or cultural institutions that wield significant power and influence in specific regions or communities. We see the duality of media and information. The second beast's deceptive appearance, looking innocent but speaking deceitfully, can be paralleled with current state of media and information dissemination. On the surface, many media outlets present themselves as unbiased, lamb-like sources of the truth. Yet in some, maybe even in many instances, they might propagate narratives that echo the dragon, leading to misinformation or even manipulation of public sentiment. Then we see subordinate powers and corporations. In the modern world, multinational corporations or institutions can act as a second beast, wielding significant power and driving global agendas. While these entities may seem independent, often they operate within the framework set by global powers, akin to the first beast. Their influence can direct public worship, whether it's in the form of commuterism, ideologies, or even technological dependence, then revisiting past triumphs. Just as the second beast emphasized the healing of the first beast's wound, modern entities often hark back to past accomplishments and historical moments to rally support or foster a sense of unity. This can be seen in nations evoking past glories, corporations celebrating their legacy, or of movements representing pivotal historical events. What we see in Revelations verses 11 through 12 really introduces us to another facet of the end of time's deception. The emergence of the second beast serves to compound the challenges believers face today as deception intensifies and becomes multifaceted. The duality of these beasts with their coordinated efforts highlights the length to which evil will go in an attempt to counterfeit God's truth and lead souls astray. Yet believers are called to discernment. 
to see beyond the external and recognize the dragon's voice beneath the lambs like facade. Next, we're going down to verses 13 through 15, the deceptive miracles of the second beast. Here's what it says. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from the heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast be slain. What we see here is a miraculous display. The second beast demonstrates its prowess through performing impressive signs, including calling down fire from heaven. This act is especially deceptive as it mirrors the miracles of God, right? The biblical prophets, such as Elijah, uh, 1 Kings 18.38, where he called down fire to prove the power of God. Such displays are not only meant to astound, but to give false credence to the beast's authority. Next, we see the power of deception. The signs and wonders, though outstanding, are tools of deception. They are not performed to glorify God, but to validate and amplify the authority of the first beast, directing worship towards it. The power of these deceptions serve as a stark reminder of Jesus' warning about false prophets, performing great signs and wonders in the end of times. Then he makes an engraven image, right? Creating an image. The directive to create an image for the first beast echoes idol worship seen throughout the Bible. This act is not just about creating a representation, but shifting adoration and allegiance from God to this false entity. The fact that the image is given breath and can speak further intensifies the deception, adding layers of complexity to the challenges believers will face. Then we see persecution for noncompliance. The ultimate act of tyranny is evident in the beast's ability to cause those who would not worship the image of the beast be slain. This amplifies the, the atmosphere of fear and underscores the life-threatening consequences for those who dare to resist. Ultimately, the second beast arises from the land, which some interpret as a reference to Israel. As with the first beast, the symbolic description suggests his role and characteristics. In this case, those are mostly spiritual and religious. This person is mostly uh, typically labeled as the false prophet though his attempts to mimic Jesus suggest it might be fair to title the figure as the Antichrist. This person is also supernaturally empowered by the devil, performing false miracles and leading people to worship the first beast. Ultimately, Revelations verses 13 through 15 continue to unravel the depth of deception and control exhorted by the beast in the end of times. The emphasis here is not just on the external show of power, but on the senator motives that drives these actions. For believers, this passage underscores the necessity for discernment, unwavering faith, and the readiness to face challenges for the sake of eternal truth. Next, we jump down to verses 16 through 17. Here's what it says. The mark of the beast and its implications. Here's what it says. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had this mark, which is in the name of the beast or the number of its name. What we do is we see the power to the image, right? Before diving into the mark, it's crucial to emphasize the extraordinary authority given to the image of the first beast. An inanimate idol, once a mere symbol, is granted the ability to discern and enforce loyalty, citing life or death based on one's worship. The blurring of this line between the real and the artificial further complicates the deceptive environment. 
Then we see the universal enforcement, the mandate, right? For the mark is a sweeping, um, indiscriminate, affecting all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave. Universality suggests that in beast dominion, no one is exempt from its influence or its decrees. Every stratum of society, regardless of status or wealth, is subject to this new real world order. Then the mark's significance, right? Placed on the right hand or forehead. The mark is not merely a brand. It signifies allegiance, loyalty, and submission to the beast. These specific locations have spiritual implications, right? The right hand often symbolizes power and action in the Bible while the forehead represents the mind or one's beliefs. Thus, receiving the mark could denote total allegiance both in thought and deed. Then what we see is the economic coercion, right? By controlling economic transactions, they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark. The beast doesn't just command religious or ideology allegiance, but introduces a practical survival-based incentive program. This control over commerce further illustrates the beast's persuasive and total power over society. Then it's the name and number. Mark is ascribed as either the name of the beast or the number of its name. While much speculation surrounds the precise meaning or significance of this number, it's clear that it serves as a symbol of complete deviation from God's truth and a total alignment with the beast's deception. Revelations chapter 13, verses 16 through 17, vividly portrays the convergence of spiritual and practical pressures in the end of times. The mark of the beast isn't just a symbol. It is a tool of both allegiance and survival. For believers, this passage is a clarion call to remain steadfast, discerning, and reliance on God's provisions, even when the entire world seems aligned against them. Then we go down to verse 18, deciphering the number of the beast. Here's what it says. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. What we see here, right, is a call for wisdom, for discernment. The verse begins with a clear directive. Discernment and wisdom are needed to understand what follows. It's not a mere riddle for the curious, but a profound, insightful reserve for those with spiritual discernment. This underscores the depth and gravity of prophecy contained in Revelations, as not everything is immediately apparent or straightforward. And it's the number of a man. The assertion that the devil's number is the number of a man has spawned much speculation throughout history. At its core, the number six in biblical numerology is often seen as falling short of perfection, with seven being the number of completeness or divine perfection. Thus, the reputation of six thrice might symbolize humanity's ultimate imperfection or incompleteness, despite its best efforts or grandest ambitions. Now, deciphering the devil's number, right? Over the centuries, many have attempted to decode this number, linking in various historical figures or systems, often using the ancient practice of, I think it's called gameteria, assigning numerical values uh, to letters. While some interpretations might offer compelling arguments, it's essential to approach such speculation with caution, keeping in mind the primary purpose of revelation is not to provide a cryptic puzzle, but to convey spiritual truths and prepare believers for what is to come. Now, the second beast also implements a worldwide identification, the mark of the beast. Earlier passages referred to God placing a seal on his people. This used the Greek root word, sapharges, which is a signet or a signature expressing value and protection. The mark of Satan, however, is described using the word sharegam, which is what livestock owners use to mark their animals, a brand. 
Later sediments revelations make it clear the mark of the beast is not something taken by accident. Those who accept this mark do so knowing that it means worshiping the beast and rejecting God. Those who refuse to take this mark, such as Christians, will be unable to buy or sell anything, and many, many, many will be executed. This mark is connected in some unknown way to Satan, right? To the figure of 666. Ultimately, right, Revelations 13.18 serves as both a culmination of the chapter and a mystery that beckons deeper reflection. While the precise identity or significance of 666 might remind elusive, the overarching message is clear. In the end times, discernment, wisdom, and unwavering faith in God's word are paramount for believers, navigating a world steeped in deception and spiritual warfare. All right. My brothers and sisters in Christ, as we wrap up today's episode of Gospel Inc., I want to leave you with a thought. Scripture, scripture is not just words on a page, but a living dialogue between us and our Creator. It's a journey of understanding, transformation, and deepening of faith. I'm David Green, and it's been an honor to explore these truths with you today. Remember, every verse we read, every reflection we share, is a step closer to the heart of God. For more discussions, insights, and to connect with the community of believers, don't forget to join us on Facebook. There, we continue the dialogue, share testimonies, and uplift each other in faith. May you carry the lessons and the insights from today in your daily lives, illuminating your path and those around you. Until next time, please stay blessed, stay curious, and let the gospel ink its wisdom onto the pages of your heart. Farewell and be well in love of Christ. Today, as we delve deeply into the chapter of the Bible, let our hearts be tuned to the resounding echoes of divine truth and hope that transcends the ages and whispers fervently to our spirits every day. In the swirling torments of time, marked by uncertainty and confusion and the shadows of persecution, let us anchor ourselves in the unshakable reality of Christ's sovereignty. He reigns supreme, his authority is unyielding, and his love is unfailing. Remember, he is the triumphant king who holds the keys to life and death, whose resurrected power pulses in our veins of creation, promising us victory over the grave and the gift of eternal life. As we tread the pages that unfold the visions granted to John on the rugged terrain of island of Patmos, let us not forget the context of this revelation. Patmos, a place of isolation and exile, mirrors the depths and despair and abandonment. Yet, it is here, amid the barren landscape, that the radiant light of God's presence pierces the veil of darkness, illuminating the path of hope, assurance, and eternal promises. Here it states, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the key to death and Hades. In the face of towering empires and oppressive rulers, John, the apostle of love, received the unyielding words of Christ, a message of flame with resolute courage and unyielding victory. These wars breathe life and resilience into the fledging Christian community, battered by the tempest and persecution and fear of the overarching empire. But... Here he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written, 
because the time is near. Let this blessing permeate our very beings, infusing us with the strength and fortitude as we navigate the pathway of our lives. May the profound words and visions of revelations fill our spirits with unwavering assurance in Christ's ultimate victory and eternal reign. In the mosaic of divine revelations, may we glimpse the celestial tapestry of God's unending love and faithfulness. As we close this reflection, let us carry forth the flame of hope ignited by the resplendent visions of John, allowing its light to guide our steps, dispel our fears, and deepen our unwavering allegiance to our risen Lord. I pray that our hearts may ever be strengthened, our spirits ever emboldened, and our lives ever anchored in the boundless ocean of God's eternal paradise. In precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I say amen. I want to close today with a simple prayer. If you would, please close your eyes and bow your head with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins today, and I invite you to come into my heart and come into my life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Now, remember, saying this prayer or any other prayer will not save you by itself. It is the genuine faith and conviction in your heart that God cares about. The words are simply a way for you to express your faith and commitment to God. The true salvation experience comes from truly believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, feeling remorse for your sins, and living a life that shows commitment to following His teachings. Now, I want to thank you, right? Thank you for following with me today, for listening to my words. If you found my content of value, I invite you to click the subscribe button. Over the next few weeks, our journey will further unfold into the chapters of Revelations. Your insights are important to me. If there's anything you disagree with or would like to share feedback on, please don't hesitate to leave me a comment. In future episodes, I plan to review comments on the podcast because engaging discussion often leads to deeper understanding. And perhaps God has granted you insight into his divine promises that could enlighten us all. Wishing you a blessed and joyful week.